Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 7, Ezra chapter 4. If Ezra and Nehemiah, which is the story of the return of the Jews to Judah, the rebuilding of the temple on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, if Ezra and Nehemiah demonstrate one thing that's rather easy for us, I think, to identify with, it is that a religious conviction is often mistakenly perceived by others as a political position. It is also true, especially after Old Testament times, that religious and spiritual beliefs can become politicized and woven together with human governments to form a kind of perverse system of population control that uses an insincere spiritual aura to manipulate people and to bring about mankind's insatiable hunger for power. Now we see these twin phenomena happen regularly in the Bible and throughout secular human history and certainly in our modern era as well. Early in Ezra chapter 3, which occurs within just a few months after that first wave of the Jews' return to Judah, we find a rising political opposition to the Jews' sincere spiritual desire to rekindle true biblical Torah observance by reconstituting the priesthood and by rebuilding the temple. Now, in the opening verses of Ezra chapter 4, we find this situation escalating as a group of representatives of some of the nearby inhabitants to Jerusalem, many of whom are foreigners who moved into Judah during the Jews' exile to Babylon, they want to continue their political and economic influence over Jerusalem and Judah by joining with the Jews in their rebuilding project. And when their offer is flatly rejected, we read that they began a persistent campaign to frustrate and undermine the rebuilding effort. So, was Zerubbabel right to stiff arm the seemingly friendly advances of the Sumerians? Yes, very much so. See, this is a good example of the prohibition against what the Torah calls illicit mixing, shanets. And later, the New Testament calls it unequal yoking. Love and peace and mercy do not trump God's direct commandment that His people are not to mix themselves, not to mix ourselves with those who are antagonistic towards the God of Israel. Nor are we to join with them in common cause just because it seems pragmatic or convenient or politically correct. Interestingly, we don't hear 
of a firm objection of the Sumerians to the religion of the Jews being reestablished. Rather, we meanly hear politically charged accusations concerning matters of territorial control, loyalties, taxation. Did the locals, which we shall call Sumerians for the sake of an easy term to remember, did they then at first pretend that theirs was a religious stance, but in reality their underlying and conscious goal was to fight against the Jews repopulating the land? Yes, it seems so. Their aim was to retain political and economic superiority. They mistook Zerubbabel's sincere desire to to, um, reignite a proper worship to the God of Israel for a want of political power. So the Sumerians decided they'd combat this seeming threat by putting a spin on their objections, by using reasons and causes that would catch the ear of the politicians, especially the Persian king, even if those stated reasons and causes were huge stretches or outright lies against the Jews. But it can't be overlooked that not all the Jews who came back had spiritual matters in the forefront of their minds. Some, those who were called the heads of their father's clans, had an agenda of reclaiming their land holdings and their possessions that they had left behind when they were forcibly exiled to Babylon but were now being held by others. Some foreigners, some Jews, some mixed ethnicities. And these returning Jews, these fathers of the clans, heads of their father's clans, they saw these people as squatters. Now no doubt this group of Jews counted themselves as among the pious. And they used a high-minded spiritual rationale for their return, even though it was only a thinly veiled cover for their primary intent, which was property recovery. And the Sumerians would have suspected that this was the real aim of all the returning Jews. So from the beginning, the Sumerians did not accept that the rebuilding of Jerusalem was about religion and spirituality. Instead, they thought it was about reestablishing Jewish political control. It was about a reoccupation over the region. Now we see a similar thing happen some five centuries later when Yeshua of Nazareth began his ministry. His motives were purely spiritual. And whatever kingship he claimed was also spiritual. He had no political aspirations, no personal ambitions, certainly had no intent to start or to lead a rebellion against the Romans. And yet the mere fact that he had a following that grew into the thousands, that made him suspect. It made him a political threat both to the corrupt Jewish religious authorities and to the local Roman provincial governor, Pontius Pilate. In fact, 
We find Messiah working tirelessly among His disciples to make it clear that He was no warrior leader or politician and that they should not involve themselves in such matters either. Some of them got it. Some, like Judas Iscariot, didn't. And in our day, we see how especially fundamental or evangelical Christianity is perceived less and less as a spiritual movement and more and more as a growing political and social threat. Otherwise, why would our various levels of government, but especially our federal government, care at all about the spiritual beliefs of American citizens? And despite many Christian leaders trying their best to explain that the church isn't about politics, but rather it's about far more important spiritual and eternal matters, there are those among us who claim to be part of the church, but who have co-opted the spiritual and intertwined it with the political, either as an unintended misjudgment or as a fully intended means to gain power and influence. Either way, the result has been to discredit our faith. The point is that as we read Ezra and Nehemiah from this point forward, just mentally picture the the social, religious, political can of worms that is America today and realize that this is hardly a new phenomenon. It's always been difficult for humans to sort out the boundaries between the spiritual and the political or what the proper mix of the two ought to be or if there should be any mix at all. What we can be assured of is that this conundrum is going to continue and it's going to get even more muddled and it will reach its zenith when the Antichrist appears. And it's going to continue this way until Messiah comes to settle the matter once and for all. Let's reread Ezra chapter 4. Now we're going to have a great deal to talk about today that lies hidden just beneath the surface of the divinely inspired words that forms its sentences and its paragraphs. Ezra chapter 4. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1121. 1121. Ezra chapter 4. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people from the exile were building a temple to Adonai, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's clans and said to them, Let us build along with you, for we seek your God, just as you do. We've been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshar Hadon, king of Asher, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' clans in Israel answered them, You and we have nothing in common, that you should join us in building a house for our God. We will build by ourselves for Adonai, the God of Israel, as Koresh, Cyrus, king of Persia, ordered us to do. 
Well, then the people of the land began discouraging the people of Judah in order to make them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the lifetime of Korish, king of Persia, and on into the reign of Daryavish, <coughs> Darius, king of Persia, during the reign of Ahasuerus, Xerxes, at the beginning of his reign, they brought a charge in writing against the people living in Judah and Jerusalem. Then in, during the time of Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes, Bishlam, Mitridat, Tavel, and their other colleagues wrote Artaxerxes. The letter was written in Aramaic, using Aramaic script, and Rechum, the district governor, and Shimshai, the secretary, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. From Rechum, the, gov- the district governor, Shimshai, the secretary, their other colleagues, the judges, the officials, the Dinaim, the Afar- uh, the Afarsat Kim, the Tarplim, the Afarsim, the Arkvim, the Bavlim, the Shushan Kaim, the Dehalim, the Elmaim, and the other nations whom the great and noble Asnapar deported and settled in Shomron, Samaria, and the others who remained in the country beyond the Euphrates, beyond the river. To Artaxasa the king from his servants, the people beyond the river. Let the king know that the Judeans who left you to come to us in Jerusalem are building this rebellious and wicked city. They have finished the walls and are now digging the foundations. So let the king know that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, they'll refuse to pay tribute, tax, toll. This will reduce the royal revenues. Now, because we eat the king's salt, and it's not right for us to see the king dishonored, we therefore are sending to inform the king. So that a search can be made in the archives of your ancestors, and in these archives you will find and ascertain that this city is indeed a rebellious city. It's the bane of kings and provinces, and that sedition has been fostered there since ancient times, which is why this city was destroyed. We submit to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished, you will soon lose possession of all the territories of beyond the river. The king sent his answer. To Rechum, the district governor, Shimshai the secretary, their other colleagues living in Samaria, and the rest of beyond the river. Shalom. This letter you sent us has now been translated for me. I ordered a search made, and it was found that this city has a long history of revolt against kings, that rebellion and sedition have been fostered there, and also that there has, have been powerful kings over Jerusalem, who ruled all the territory beyond the river, and tribute taxes and tolls were paid to them. So now order these men to stop work. This city is not to be rebuilt until I order it. Take care not to neglect your duty, otherwise the harm may increase to damage the king. And when the the text of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shimshai, the secretary, and their colleagues, they hurried to Jerusalem, to the Judeans, and they stopped their work by the force of arms. So the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased. It remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of Daryavesh, Darius, king of Persia. Now we talked last week about the difficulties with the book of Ezra in extracting a timeline. 
And part of the reason is due to the, re- to the restructuring of all the Bible books into chapters, paragraphs, and verses by scholars centuries after the Bible, Old and New Testaments, were completed and closed up. But sometimes it's also due to the form and purpose of an ancient literary editor who first wrote these books. And we find it places in Ezra and Nehemiah. It is as though the editor is looking through a microscope or a telescope at a high magnification to see the finer details. And then he backs away to get a wide-angle view only to zoom in once again. Or he does what I do at times. And that is to begin to give you information, but then we veer off into a detour that I think is necessary to provide some additional background that makes what I'm trying to communicate to you more clear and complete. The difference between me and that ancient Hebrew editor is that I tell you we're going to take a detour. (laughs) Or in modern literary convention, sometimes a modern writer will take his detour by means of extensive footnotes. Or perhaps he will use parentheses as a means of interrupting the flow momentarily to add some nuance before then returning to the subject at hand. This happens extensively in Ezra chapter 4. Essentially, Ezra chapter 4 is structured such that verses 1 to 5 describe the main subject. Then, verses 6 to 23 are a detour. Then, verse 24 returns us to the main subject. It would have been nice had the editor said he digresses at this point. Or he gives us some warning that he's inserting some additional info that's not chronologically connected with the rest of the subject material surrounding it. But that isn't how this ancient Hebrew writer did things. So we're going to have to adapt to him, not him to us. Now I want to show you what I mean as concerns Ezra chapter 4. Now I want you to look at your Bibles, follow along carefully with me as we reread verses 1 through 5 and then we're going to immediately jump to the last verse, verse 24. I want you to watch how this flows and connects when we do that. When the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people from, exile, from the exile were building a temple to Adonai, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's clans and said to them, Let us build along with you, for we seek your God, just as you do. And we have been sacrificing to him since the time of Eshar Hadon, the king of Asher, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Yeshua, and the rest of the heads of the father's clans in Israel answered them, You and we have nothing in common that you should join us in building a house for our God. We will build it by ourselves for Adonai the God of Israel as Korish king of Persia orders to do. Then the people of the land began discouraging the people of Judah in order to make them afraid to build. They also bribed officials to frustrate their plan throughout the lifetime of Korish king of Persia and on into the reign of Daryavesh king of Persia. So the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased and it remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of Daryavesh king of Persia. You see that now? Now that 
Makes sense. (laughs) What we just read deals with the reigns of kings Cyrus and Darius. Look at this chart up here. It's going to help you a lot. What we just read deals with the reigns of kings Cyrus and Darius. Koresh and Daryavesh. This was the time period from 559 to 486 BC. About 73 years. How about the part we just skipped over? Verses 6 through 23. Well, that's dealing with a time after Cyrus and Darius because as we read in verse 6, this action took place during the reign of Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. And then in verse 7, the time leaps ahead again to Artachshta, King Artaxerxes, Xerxes' son. The reigns of Xerxes and then Artaxerxes begin where Darius left off at 486 BC and then continue on to 424 BC. So, Ezra chapter 4 is actually dealing with around, plus or minus, 120 years of history. If we don't understand that the editor paused after verse 5, then he went on this detour at verse 6 and continued that detour through verse 23 in order to give us some needed information and context about all this trouble that the Sumerians caused the Jews by writing letters to the various Persian kings. And then it picks up again at verse 24 with King Cyrus and Darius. Then nothing about the timeline in Ezra chapter 4 makes much sense. And that is why so many modern scholars insist that whoever wrote Ezra was a very poor historian who got the order and the era of the kings of Persia all wrong. Or that this is simply a fictional story and was never intended to have any historical accuracy. Nothing could be further from the truth. The editor of Ezra is likely the same editor as the books of Chronicles. And his history and order of events is precise and it's correct. We just have to approach the reading of his works according to the ancient Hebrew way of thinking and writing and not with a 21st century Western worldview and expectation. Let's view the structure of Ezra chapter 4 in yet another and complementary way. Verses 1 through 5, follow me, verses 1 through 5 are all about rebuilding the temple. And the context is that it includes the reigns of Cyrus, then Cambyses, then Bardiah, kind of a short-lived imposter, then Darius. Now, verses 6 through 23 are all about rebuilding the defensive walls of the city of Jerusalem. And this action occurs during the reigns of Xerxes, then his son Artaxerxes. Then verse 24 returns to addressing the temple reconstruction beginning at the time of Cyrus and then finally Darius. See, this switching back and forth can be pretty hard to follow. But once we understand what we're looking for, then it gets a whole lot easier. Now we looked carefully at the first three verses last week that explained how all this animosity 
between the returning Jews and the Samarians began. And it was with this refusal of Zerubbabel to allow the Samarians to become partners in the rebuilding project. Verse 4 tells us what the consequences were for this refusal. Then the people of the land began discouraging the people of Judah in order to make them afraid to build. And while we don't know all the different ways that the Samaritans brought about this discouragement, we do find in the next few verses that officials from the province of Judah wrote letters to the king of Persia complaining about this rebuilding and giving him warnings that this was going to lead to big trouble. In fact, we hear of four separate instances of the use of public officials to try and stop the work on the temple and on the walls of Jerusalem. In verse 4, we find that the Samarians bribed local officials during the reigns of Cyrus through Darius to try to disrupt the Jews' plans. We aren't told just what this bribery led to. How it is that the local officials made construction impossible. But whatever it was, it was effective. Next in verse 6, we hear that an official charge against the Jews living in Judah was brought forth during the reign of King Xerxes. We don't know exactly who brought this charge and if it was even actually brought to Xerxes or only to his royal court. And we don't know the precise nature of the charge. But again, whatever it was, it proved disruptive and effective. Then in verse 7, we hear about another letter. This one was written to King Artaxerxes by some men named Bishlam, Mitradath, Tavel, and some other unnamed co-conspirators. We don't know exactly who these men are or what their government positions were, although there's been no lack of speculation, a lot of guessing. They wrote the letter in Aramaic. This was the language of the royals of Persia. The purpose for doing this is because if it was written in some other language, then it would first have to be translated by the royal scribes and rewritten. This would result in a delay. And as far as these men were concerned, the matter was serious. It needed immediate attention. Then later in verse 8 is the occasion of yet another letter written to King Artaxerxes, this time from Rehum and Shimshai, his secretary. No doubt these were high officials, but it's unlikely that Rehum was the governor of the province of beyond the river to which Judah belonged. But he was high enough that he would have had the king's ear but the highest officials had to speak the king's language, Aramaic. Apparently, Rahum didn't. We'd learned that this letter sent by Rahum wasn't written in Aramaic because verse 18 makes it clear that the letter didn't reach the king until it had been translated. Then, beginning in verse 9, we get a copy of the letter that was sent to King Artaxerxes along with a list of cohorts who signed on in agreement. Exactly who they are, what their positions were is unknown to us. But since their positions weren't included, apparently they were well known within the Persian royal court. And there was no point in listing them as far as the editor of the book of Ezra was concerned. The letter isn't dated, but it cannot have been later than the time of Nehemiah, around 440 BC. So here's what we can learn from all these official complaints and letters. 
if we only deal with the ones listed here, the Sumerians began using official Persian channels against the Jews beginning around 557 BC. In other words, immediately upon their return from exile. And it never ceased right through 445 BC. Now I want you to think about that. Can you imagine in our day keeping up a political opposition to some building project for well over a century through several different government administrations? Some of this involves Middle Eastern culture in which dishonor and offenses and insults aren't ever forgiven. Western culture is all about short attention spans. We think a long war is ten years. We think a generation or two is a long time to overcome and replace established traditions and customs. To the Middle Easterner, whether it's in the biblical or the modern era, that amount of time isn't even worth talking about. But also consider the Jews' side of things. They had to persist for several generations to finally accomplish what they first came to Judah to do. Rebuild the temple. Reconstruct the walls of Jerusalem. Now as you can imagine, they ran hot and cold as the years rolled by. They'd try again to start construction. They'd be thwarted again. And then those leaders who led the effort would fall away. And so did the interest and the velocity to do anything. Then a new batch of leaders would catch the vision and arise. And they take up the cause and they try again. We are only getting the super condensed Reader's Digest account in Ezra and Nehemiah. And most of the details are left out. But a lot more happened over almost one and one quarter centuries than we're reading about here. Now let's connect some pretty interesting dots before we move on. The gist of the letter sent to Artaxerxes is that the Jews are rebels. They intend on destroying the peace that's being enjoyed in the beyond the river province. And further, the Jews have a history of sedition of not paying taxes. This could result in less revenue for the Persian treasury. And all kings had personal survival as job number one on their list. And then building up the treasury ran a close second. No doubt these accusations were generally the same in every letter writing campaign to every Persian king. Now we're looking at a long span of time here over the reigns of several kings. So it's not like each letter had to have a different agenda and list of complaints or the king would tire of hearing about it. Therefore Xerxes would have been buffeted with these same complaints. But before those letters ever reached his eyes, his scribes and his royal court would have known all about the issues and 
dealt with them at a lower level to try to resolve them if at all possible because that was their job. Not resolving these issues, well, that was a failure on their part. I want you to open your Bibles to Esther, the book of Esther, chapter 3. It's just a few pages back from the book of Ezra. Now, we're going to read part of it in a moment, but here's the connection I want you to notice. The time of Esther takes place during the reign of King Xerxes. This is, of course, the same Xerxes, Akashverosh, that we're reading about now in Ezra. So at the same time that Esther is being considered as the next queen of Persia and that this wicked Haman is planning on how to get rid of Mordecai and a couple of million Jews, several thousand Jews had already ventured back to Judah and they are in the midst of trying and failing to rebuild the temple and the walls of Jerusalem. And the Sumerians are continually conspiring with local Persian officials by sending nasty grams to King Xerxes and his royal court. In fact, by the time of Esther, the Jews had been free for 50 years. And a number of waves of returning Jews had arrived back in Judah, reclaimed their property, tried to work on the temple and the city walls of Jerusalem, and confronted these disagreeable Samarians. So as we open Esther chapter 3, decades of bad feelings between the Jews of Judah and the local Samarians have now built to the boiling point. So let's look at Esther chapter 3. We're going to read the first 11 verses. First 11 verses of Esther chapter 3. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1091. Sometime later, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, began to single out Haman the son of Hamdatha, the Agagite, for advancement. And eventually he gave him precedence over all of his fellow officers. All of the king's servants at the king's gate would kneel and bow down before Haman because the king had so ordered it. But Mordecai would neither kneel nor bow down to him. And the king's servants at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why won't you obey the king's order? But after they had confronted him a number of times without his paying attention to them, they told Haman in order to find out whether Mordecai's explanation that he was a Jew would satisfy would suffice to justify his behavior. Haman was furious when he saw that Mordecai was not kneeling and bowing down to him. However, on learning what Mordecai, what people Mordecai belonged to, it seemed to him a waste to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Rather, he decided to destroy all of Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole of King Xerxes' kingdom. And in the first month, the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of Ahasuerus, they began throwing poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman every day and every month until the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. And then Haman said to Ahasuerus, King Xerxes, There is a particular people scattered and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. 
Moreover, they don't observe the king's laws. It doesn't befit the king to tolerate them. Now, if it pleases the king, have a decree written for their destruction. I'll hand over 333 tons of silver to the officials in charge of the king's affairs to deposit in the royal treasury. The king took his signet ring from his hand. He gave it to Haman, the son of Hamdatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you and the people too to do with as seems good to you. Here we find some kind of seeming irrational hatred of the Jews by Haman. Part of it is simply because Haman is descended from Amalek the eternal earthly enemy of Israel. And so Haman has buried deep within his soul the spirit of Amalek. But now perhaps as we overlay the stories of Ezra and Esther, we can see that the Jews still living in Persia couldn't escape the fact that their Jewish brethren who had immigrated back to Judah had also gained a poor reputation among the non-Jewish Persians. Well, at least among the Persian government officials, those closest to the royal court and to the king, Haman would have been fully aware of the Jewish problem in Judah. But apparently, the matter hadn't yet been escalated to Xerxes for his personal attention. And as history shows, Xerxes... Well, he was an incorrigible king who was primarily interested in partying and in leisure. He did not like to handle affairs of state any more than what was forced upon him. So Haman tells the king that there is this people who are scattered all over the Persian Empire who don't observe the king's laws. Instead, they have their own laws. He doesn't identify them which is further proof that Xerxes had no knowledge of the complaints against the Jews of Judah at this time. And when speaking of obeying other laws, Haman can only be referring to the law of Moses, which Zerubbabel and later Ezra were trying to reinstitute down in Judah. See, here's where we have to widen our view now and understand that Judah was just part of the Persian Empire. And within the past 50 years, a great concentration of Jews had now repopulated Judah. And as far as the Persian government was concerned, the Jews of Judah, man, they'd become a pain in the neck. Now it was a very long way, it was actually about a four months journey from Susa, which is the capital city of Persia, where the story of Esther takes place, to Jerusalem. And no one who didn't have to would ever consider making that arduous journey. The king certainly hadn't been there so far as we know. And probably neither had Haman. So whatever official correspondence they received from Judah about the goings-on there was of course from government officials and it was considered accurate, if not gospel. We can be sure that the general Persian population didn't have a high regard for those troublesome Jews far to the south in the beyond the river provincial district called Judah 
And we can be equally as sure that the majority of Persian Jews sympathized with their Jewish brethren who now lived in Judah. So while there's no evidence of an overwhelming tension between the Jewish and the non-Jewish Persians, it must have laid just under the surface. And some Persians probably had pretty strong feelings about it. Thus, when Haman offered the non-Jewish Persians the opportunity to attack the Jewish Persians and take their property, well, a sizable number welcomed it, even if the majority didn't seem to want to participate. Thus we see Haman hating all the Jewish people and then going to King Xerxes with an offer that he would donate a huge amount of silver to the Persian treasury if he was given official sanction to wipe out the Jews. This, of course, would have included those troublesome Jews in Judah who wanted to rebuild that temple, although Xerxes didn't seem to know about this just yet. And clearly, as you can imagine, the Sumerians would have relished the opportunity to kill off all those Jews who were trying to rebuild the temple and reestablish themselves as the rightful residents of Judah. If there was a true concern that if the Jews of Judah rebuilt the temple and the city walls, that they would rebel and stop paying taxes and tributes, then how much could dead Jews pay? (laughs) Himon essentially decided, well, no taxes is no taxes, whether it was the result of refusal to pay or because the potential taxpayers were wiped out. Thus his generous offer to give to the Persian treasury an amount of money to make up for the lost revenues from all the Jews that he intended to liquidate. Now remember, King Xerxes' name was attached to that death decree that was sent to every corner of his empire, Judah included. So as we read the book of Ezra about what's happening with the Jews in Judah, at the time of Xerxes' reign, in the book of Esther, we're reading about the same period. Only it's about what's happening with the Jews in the capital city of the Persian Empire, Susa. You see that relationship now? So let's return now from our detour that I told you about back to the letter of complaint sent to Artaxerxes in Ezra chapter 4. Artaxerxes was the king to follow Xerxes. So the issue of Haman and this decree to kill the Jews had occurred several years earlier. Essentially, Rehum and his cohorts challenge King Artaxerxes to have a search of their official records to see what could be dug up about Jerusalem and these Judahites. And the result, they say, the king is going to find that the Jews are a dangerous people. They just constantly rebel. The fear they plant in the king's mind is that the defensive wall, when the defensive walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt, it will become a fortress 
of sedition and a center of incitement against the Persian Empire. And that Jerusalem had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar almost 150 years earlier because of the Jews' intransigent attitude, their refusal to submit and to show allegiance to their conquerors. In fact, they say, a completion of this rebuilding project will mean an end to the entire province of beyond the river, not merely the district of Judah. So starting in verse 17, the king responds, just as Rehum had hoped for. After delay so that the letter that Rehum sent could be translated into Aramaic, the record search in Susa was concluded. And Rehum's accusations were confirmed. Jerusalem had historically been a place of rebellion and trouble. And the Jews had refused to pay taxes and tribute. In fact, this is true. And the Bible confirms it. Listen to 2 Kings chapter 24, verses 1-10. through 10. It was in Jehoiakim's time that Nebuchadnezzar king of Babel invaded. Jehoiakim became his vassal for three years, but then he turned against him and rebelled. Adonai sent against him raiding parties from the Kastim, the Chaldeans, Aram, Moab, and the people of Ammon, and he sent against them Judah. He sent them against Judah to destroy it, in keeping with the word of Adonai, which he had spoken through his servants, the prophets. Yes, it was at Adonai's order that this happened to Judah in order to remove them from his sight because of the sins of Manasseh and all that he had done and also because of the innocent blood that he had shed for he had flooded Jerusalem with innocent blood and Adonai was unwilling to forgive. Other activities of Jehoiakim and all of his accomplishments are recorded in the annals of the kings of Judah. Then Jehoiakim slept with his ancestors and Jehoiachin, his son, took his place as king. The king of Egypt did not leave his own land anymore because the king of Babel had captured all the territory of the king of Egypt between the Wadi of Egypt and the Euphrates River. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he began his reign and he ruled in Jerusalem for three months. His mother's name was Nehushtah, the daughter of El-Natan from Jerusalem. He did what was evil from Adonai's perspective following the example of everything his father had done. It was then that the officers of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babel, marched on Jerusalem and they laid siege to the city. So, the king's letter to Rehum, which is in verse 21, gave him instructions to stop the construction work immediately. It shouldn't begin again. Unless and until the king himself gives the order. Rehum immediately acted by force of arms to shut down all building operations. This ends the detour that the editor of Ezra took us on to provide some background for the issue of the Sumerians constantly conspiring with the Persian government to inhibit the rebuilding of the temple. So, now that we hit verse 24, the editor returns to the subject matter at hand and explains that the temple reconstruction was uh, that, that, that after the temple reconstruction was halted, it would not be until early in Darius's reign that the hopes and the dreams of the Jewish returnees to reconstruct the temple and restart Torah observance would begin anew. But also that all of the halts, all of the trouble 
with the Persian government were caused by a determined effort of the Sumerians who were deemed to be the enemies of the Jews. We'll begin chapter 5 next time.